Good afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Konnichiwa. I'm Yuri Tanaka. Coming up on today's show, we will be talking about wood, grass, and invisibility. Also joining us is Dr. Matthew Ricard to talk about the science of happiness. In addition, you can find out what a fermion is. Stay tuned for all this. First, the world famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. Uh, I'm Yuri Tanaka. Yuri Tanaka back in the Grok studio again. <laughs> oh. Giving some science from Japan. Oh, nothing special. <laughs> nothing? Japan is the land of science and technology, right? Oh, I know there's something going on, but I'm isolated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my university is called Isolated Island. Yeah, yeah, but it's in Main Island. Well, I think all universities are isolated islands. They oh. divorce from reality. <laughs> Yeah, last time you were on the program, you had been working on a documentary film. And we're still working on、uh. more editing, but so far we finished first step and we show a film on my class, and it was pretty nice. And we got positive reflection from student、wow. and professor. Oh, that's very good. Is there lots of special effects? Oh, no. <laughs> no special effects because it's documentary and educational.、Oh. I hope so, but. <laughs> I can't. You know, you need lightsaber battle, some laser beams. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking to do for another project. Oh, well, that sounds like a cool project. <laughs> I want to be in it. Yeah. Actually, make science show before. Oh, back like, in Japan? Ah,、uh, yes, science experiment. What kind of related to everyday life? How to make slime. Slime. Oh, slime, okay. And how to make ringed smoke, like s u c k r o u n d e d smoke. Cigarettes yeah, and yeah, blowing yeah, yeah, smoke rings、yeah. out.、Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, how do you do that actually? I've been trying that. <laughs>、oh, <laughs> I need to start smoking then, first though.、Yeah. <laughs> we did an experiment with cardboard box、uh-huh. and we used incense、uh-huh. and then we put incense inside cardboard box、uh-huh. and then wait for 10 minutes or so and then we will make hole、um, on the side of cardboard box and then we cut the hole and then we push. From、oh, both sides, and then we can make big、around. smoke rings. Yeah, yeah, big ring smoke. So you learn something every day on this show. Kids, try that at home and don't burn down the house. Well, we're glad to have you on the program, and、uh, we'll be chatting about some cool science stuff today. Does anyone here use、uh, glasses? I never use glass. <laughs> I just drink straight from the fountain. How about bifocals? So it turns out for people who do use bifocals, they're inconvenient. It actually is kind of dizzying and uncomfortable because you're gazing through two different lenses at the same time. But some scientists have actually created a new lens system, actually a polymer based on liquid crystals that can change the focal properties、uh, within a second. It's just the intrinsic nature of the glass itself? So the crystals, when you expose it to certain electronic fields, it can change the focal. Focus just like that, but because the crystals can realign in a different way. So, is 
the idea then to have an electronic battery charge in the glass and you just change the index? With very low voltage, you can make your glasses adapt to the environment. Hopefully they can turn into shades that look very hip and cool. So when you're outside, it turns into sunglasses. Yeah. Huh? So this is actually carried out by a group at the University of Arizona, a group led by <laughs> Guo Chang Li, and it's published in our very favorite journal. Oh, is it really? Yeah, the Proceedings. Of the oh. National? Academy of Sciences. PNAS. Have either of you ever wanted to be invisible? Kind of. You know, I don't think anyone notices me anyways. <laughs> well, some scientists have figured out a way that they might be able to bend light around an object to make people invisible. So like having a gravitational field around you? It's like an invisibility cloak, they say. Uh-huh. So you'd have this material on and it would just bend the light around you. Oh, but for what purpose? <laughs> Largely, it'd probably be military purposes, I think. Oh. <laughs> so you can sneak in and blow stuff up. <laughs> Harry Potter can do that, too. Or ninja. Are they a big market nowadays, I wonder? Or some nice business for entertainment. <laughs> well, I would just tickle them and then run out. <laughs> so different materials have different refractive indexes, and so as light hits it, it'll scatter it in some... Uh-huh. They've been able to take different types of material. This is a group led by John Pendry of the Imperial College London. He and the co-workers have devised some materials that have negative refractive indexes. Right. So they're able to design mixtures of these molecules such that when the light hits an object, it'll bend and then curve back around it. Or at least in theory, anyway. So uh-huh. <laughs> these things still have to be pursued, but it's sort of a different idea from previous approaches, which require that the materials be sculpted for individual objects. This one is more general. So it could be like a cloth, then? If... Potentially could be. Uh-huh. Although you can never make anything completely invisible because of imperfections. They say it looks like by reducing the imperfections, you might be able to make it nearly invisible. Right. So if you ever want to be invisible, you can take a look at this. Their ideas are in a recent edition of Science. So, Charles, is your home falling apart on termites? <laughs> Since I don't really have a home, say. Like a ronin. <laughs> I am without a master. So it turns out sodium silicate could be the answer to rotting lumber, and it's also environmentally friendly. Oh. So does the sodium silicate stop termites from gnawing on the wood? How does it work? So basically, uh, the sodium silicate combats rot, decay, and such related problems. And it's also fire resistant. I imagine it also has desiccating properties. I think it does. That might prevent termites from chewing on the wood. Uh-huh. Perhaps going to be an additive in the future to be added to all new construction houses? Could be, because it's actually not as expensive as you might think. It's going to be a little bit more expensive composite materials, but probably cheaper than some of the traditional pressure-treated wood. Okay. With none of the toxins now. <laughs> all right. It's actually going to be available on retailers in New England and Midwest this coming summer. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grok you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Dr. Matthew Ricard joins us to talk about the science of happiness. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. As a leader of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama is best known for his work in humanity and compassion. But he also has a strong interest in science, its impact on our lives, and its relationship with religion and spirituality. He's often been quoted as saying that the purpose of life is happiness. Well, joining us today to talk about this notion is one of his translators, Dr. Matthew Ricard, who has translated many Tibetan works into French. Uh, Dr. Ricard, thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome. So, you certainly have a very interesting background. Uh, you started off as an analytical scientist. Uh, in fact, you got your training in cellular biology uh, back in the 60s, and then you turned your interest towards Buddhism. Um, how did your interest in science turn into this devotion? And when you look back, did you have an epiphany, or were your interests just changing gradually? Well, I think, you know, science is the rigorous and honest investigation of uh, the phenomenal world. So its domain can be the outer world, like you know, finding how chromosome works, how the, the genome works, investigating the stars, the formation of the universe. But you could also imagine taking as domain of investigation the, the, how your mind works, mm -hmm. uh, the nature of mind, uh, how emotion arises, the mechanism of happiness and suffering. Mm -hmm. And so somehow, of course, I was fascinated by the works in molecular biology that I was doing at Pasteur Institute. I was working with the Nobel Prize of Medicine, François Jacob and Mono. Uh, but yet somehow I began to travel while doing my PhD. I went to India. I met some remarkable uh, Tibetan uh, masters who had left the invasion of Tibet by communist China. And at that point, I was very inspired by the quality of those, of those people I met. You know, I was very lucky in France because of my background to meet great intellectuals. My father was a philosopher, great artist, my mother was a painter. I met Stravinsky when I was 16 years old and had lunch with him. But it was a very exciting time. Yet, you know, I would have loved to say to play the chess like Bobby Fischer, but I would not want to become like Bobby Fischer as a human being. So when I met the Dalai Lama and other great uh, spiritual teachers in, in the Himalayas, there, you know, I didn't care so much about the detail of what they knew in terms of uh, language or skills, but I was very much impressed by the quality they were uh, displaying as, as, a, as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I felt that to become this very wonderful uh, type of person was a, a most inspiring uh, thing to see. And so I began to be interested into investigating the mind mm -hmm. and the whole Buddhist philosophy that comes as a contemplative science. Right. And so after doing my PhD, I decided to settle in the Himalayas and I've been live, happily living there for 35 years. <laughs> Wonderful. And um, you're in a very interesting book that came out recently, um, Happiness, uh, a guide to developing life's most important skills. Um, to you, what exactly is happiness? Uh, it's a very nice word, but it's not very well defined. That's right. Often we confuse it with pleasure, with uh, excitement, with uh, euphoria. And I think uh, all those are fleeting states. Mm -hmm. And what uh, I refer here to happiness is really a way of being. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a, a deeper stand in life that comes with a cluster of qualities. So we could define it as an exceptionally healthy state of mind, kind of optimal state of mind that you can uh, that remains throughout different emotional states even in sadness or joy you can remain a deep sense of meaning of sense of direction in life of you know wanting to be alive and have a constructive life 
and also that gives you the inner strength and resources to deal with whatever comes your way. Uh-huh. And so, if you look within, this comes with a cluster of qualities. Well, you know, Aristotle, the great philosopher, said happiness is the goal of goals. <laughs> that means everything you do somehow is geared toward a better quality of your experience. Right. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking, may I suffer the whole day. Right. So there are some you know, French philosophers and others who say, no, we are not interested in happiness. <laughs> no, we want creativity, passion, manifestation. <laughs> but in fact, that's their own way to find happiness. Right. And simply, we don't really know what well-being is, is truly is. So uh-huh. we, get, we are confused as to this, the nature of this goal. And then, of course, we look a bit like shooting arrows in the dark, because if it's not clear uh, what happiness is, then you know, how can we find it? So the, our idea is that uh, some, most of the experienced suffering comes from some kind of mental toxins, you know, like hatred, a nagging jealousy, uh, a, a burning sort of obsessive desire. Those leave you in, in a very deep state of inconfort, unease. Mm-hmm and uh, excessive selfishness, uh, excessive self-importance. All those are creating and perpetuating your inner torment and also making you act in a way that are detrimental to others' happiness. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to deal with the inner conditions and not to fear looking within oneself. I met a young Californian the other day who said, no, I don't want to look within myself. I'm afraid of what I'm going to find there. This is a very strange reaction. I told that to the Dalai Lama. He said, well, how come? It's so exciting, it's better than to go to a movie, there's so much happening in your mind. Mm-hmm. So in fact, this is a very uh, wonderful adventure to try to deal with our emotions as they arise and slowly to try to replace all this mental toxin by constructive emotions that makes a, a much uh, sort of harmonious way of being and relating to others. So that pursuit is cultivating happiness as a skill. And now uh, I came back to science to of neuroscience and studying uh, the influence of meditation and mind training on the brain. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, uh, meditators who have done meditation on compassion and loving kindness for 10,000 to 50,000 hours in their life, the kind of expert athletes of meditation, right. they are the faculty to generate very powerful and clean and well localized mental state and wave brain waves, which are untrained people. Are unable, like control groups, are unable to, to generate on the brain. And playing on brain plasticity, that means the faculty that the brain has to adapt to novelty and to training. So in a way, this kind of line of collaboration could give its letter of nobility to meditation. Because meditation often is considered, you know, it's like a relaxation. It's like trying to empty your mind, blanking your mind of all thoughts. It's really not like that. It's a very dynamic process of trying to become a better human being to cultivating some skills. So I think this doesn't have to be labeled as a Buddhist, mm-hmm. although it's inspired by Buddhist ideas. But if something is true, it's true for everyone. It is fake, it's fake for everyone. Yeah. So I think with the principle of mind training, you could imagine that in order to cultivate more uh, greater emotional balance, this could be in a very secular way, uh-huh. uh, you know, introduced in education, in the emotional balance program in adult, and we are doing a program now here in, in California. It's called Cultivating Emotional Balance with 150 women teachers who do three months of meditation, and there's a, a considerable change in the way they relate to their students, their spouse, and this is uh, something that is helped by Pfizer Institute and the Mind and Life Institute of which uh, I belong, which is devoted to exploring the collaboration between contemplatives and modern science.
Yet in contrast, our education seems to emphasize the acquisition or gaining of things, which is probably not what your goals are. Well, you see, the, our goals are the same, is to find happiness, but the fact is how we, how we do about that. You, know, mm -hmm. you spoke about acquiring wealth. No, there have been thousands of studies that shows that once you're above the poverty line, I mean, if you are concerned with feeding your children and uh, your survival, of course, mm -hmm. the more wealth you get, it's an enormous improvement in your quality of life. Right. But past this stage, it's well known that if you double or triple your income, your reported happiness is not increased. There's a study over 50 years. The GDP in America was multiplied by three. Mm -hmm. The uh, percentage of people, uh, the studies over 10,000 of people, who declared that they're very happy, are slightly decreased. So there's really no correlation. Uh, once we have passed the minimum threshold of, of being over poverty, mm -hmm. there's no real correlation with your wealth and your happiness. So that's why you know, we want uh, well-being. But we imagine that it's going to come from means that do not have uh, no relation with well-being. So that's why we should be more preoccupied with gross national happiness than gross national product. <laughs> Great. Um, so I guess more along the lines about um, seeking truth. Um, science and religion both seek some sort of truth. Uh, Science seeks the what and the how, while religion, um, so-called religion, seeks the why. Um, is truth something we can intuit from our greater awareness of ourselves, or does it come from um, external experiences or interactions with the world? Well, you know, again, this the dialogue with science, between science and religion has been a, obviously a complicated one. And when, when religion is entrenched in dogma, and say you have to have a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. And when that leap of faith is in contradiction with science, then you are in big trouble for the dialogue. You know, when people come to interfaith sort of meeting and say, you know, of course God exists. Now, how we conciliate with science? You know, that's it's a, it's not a proper starting point. The starting point should be the investigation of reality. Mm -hmm. What is the real nature of things? Mm -hmm. So in case of Buddhism, you know, it is not a theistic religion. We speak of the law of cause and effect of interdependence, of a beginningless universe, like a, it would be fine if we had multiple big bands, with this notion, no notion of a first cause, of a, of a real beginning and so forth. So we could not really say it's a religion in the sense where nowadays people think of religion as something that's totally different paradigm from science. Mm -hmm. Actually, Buddhism is a very pragmatic approach to investigating reality. And there was an atomistic theory uh, in Buddhist ancient philosophy that was much more sophisticated than that of the Greeks and where they demonstrated that you could not have indivisible particles that was not something that would work to build up the universe so something that was very close to the modern philosophical implication of quantum physics mm -hmm. but basically there's no such dogma in, in Buddhism if you prove something wrong that's fine that we are, there's no something that we have to cling to by all means mm -hmm. and so that's why I think, uh, you know, Einstein himself said that among all the spiritual tradition, not to say religion, but the Buddhism was by far the one that was closest to the spirit of, of modern science, especially of his conception of cosmology and quantum physics and so forth. And for those of us just joining us right now, we are talking to Dr. Matthew Ricard, Tibetan monk and translator for the Dalai Lama on the science of happiness. 
So there are actually several flavors of Buddhism. Some emphasize compassion, others emphasize self-enlightenment. Well, are they all the same? All of them uh, spring from the, the teachings of, of the Buddha in India. You know, there's a vast amount of the Buddha's teaching. It fills about hundred volumes of his uh, spoken sort of teachings, and so all those are different aspects. And I think it's, it's quite a wonderful things in the, in the form of Buddhism mostly been practicing for 30 years in, in the Tibetan tradition that it really integrates all those aspects of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Of course we have the pursuit of enlightenment but with the idea that may I become able through achieving enlightenment to free all beings from suffering. So the compassion and the wisdom are like the two wings of one bird. Mm-hmm. So you don't start flying with one wing and then the other. Right. You have to fly with two wings at the same time. So wisdom and compassion are inseparable. Towards this notion of a um, happy world, a happier society, um, we certainly need, you know, some mechanism to coordinate our resources better. Um, Amartya Sen, uh, who got the Nobel Prize, uh, was one of the uh, economists who emphasized putting human values into economic models. Do you have any thoughts on how we can? better improve our use of resources? Well, this is absolutely essential. In Buddhism, we emphasize the, the notion of universal responsibility and non-violence. Non-violence doesn't mean passivity, but it means non-violence to toward human beings, toward animals, and toward the environment. Universal responsibility is the idea that something like the north-south economic gap, you know, having the rich next to the poor, and famines when there are so much wealth other places, is simply a lose-lose situation. It creates instability in the world. This is the poverty in the world and the dissatisfaction that end up in the end creating terrorism and resentment and, mm-hmm. and, so, and so forth. So in fact, by being selfish, we end up being also uh, the target. And that selfishness ends up in suffering for everyone. While if we realize this interconnectedness uh, with the environment, with all the different uh, populations that, that constitute the, our world, and this planet becomes so small with the communication. If we are equally concerned by everyone and trying to raise those who are in need uh, more closer to the level where those who are affluent, it's a win-win situation. Right. Uh, it has foster peace, harmony, uh, people are more satisfied, while by increasing that gap, then that's again how we foster wars, suffering, conflict, resentment, and long-lasting animosity and un- misunderstanding between culture and nations. So I was invited last year to Dav- uh, Davos World Economic Forum. And uh, it, although from outside it seems entirely beyond economy, but within they are very concerned with those ideas that next uh, forum in 2007 might be centered on values. And there are also many economists, like Daniel Kahneman also got the Nobel Prize on economy. He's the only psychologist who ever got the economy Nobel Prize. He works also on happiness. And there are people like Richard Layard of London School of Economy who wrote a book called Happiness, Lessons from a New Science, where he said government must not invest in well-being because gross national product is supposed to bring a better quality of life. Right. But if it doesn't, what's the point? Why should we develop something that increases our difficulties? So speaking of nonviolence, um, I think it was Gandhi who said that one of the roots of violence is science without humanity. Um, do you have any thoughts on how science education or you know education in general should be improved? Um, it seems today there is very little emphasis on getting students to ask questions for themselves, getting them to think about problems to solve. Instead, it's a lot of 
knowledge without a lot of processing. But the, the thing is, uh, you know, in ancient days, the religion was mixed with education. So now, at least in Europe, it's a very secular education. Mm -hmm. And so uh, now education is mostly acquiring a lot of information and knowledge and sharpening intelligence. Mm -hmm. But all those are tools. You, know, you could use your intelligence to you know, work for achieving 9-11 or you could use your intelligence to save the world. Mm -hmm. So it's like a hammer. You could use a hammer to build a house or to destruct it, to destroy it. So the development of human value is no more present at school because people don't know how to approach that. It's, they think it's sort of a religious approach. Right. But in fact, there, there could be a secular spirituality, a secular ethics, and an understanding that although religion is a choice that we can do or not, when we have the faculty to think about it, not just when we are too young to just being you know, carried away by family tradition, but Love and compassion, something we need from the first day we are born to the last day of our life. You know, without the love and compassion of our parents, the baby will not survive. An elderly person without the love and compassion of those around will not survive. Mm -hmm. So that we need to give and receive at all times in our life. So developing that is not just like a, you know, a peace and love sort of uh, hippie <laughs> stuff or a kind of religious thing. It's a basic need of human beings. Mm -hmm. And that's really, we have to find ways maybe to having different names like instead of meditation we could say secular training to attention instead of loving and kindness and compassion we could say cultivating emotional balance which are more acceptable to modern society yet are uh, meant to help the the growing sort of uh, you know human beings to develop uh, these values and, and, and that's something is really lacking in, among children and teenagers mm -hmm. they, I think the thirst for that I've been having meeting with young kids and they ask you extraordinary questions you know, about death, about what is nature of time, about what is happiness. But somehow they have nobody to ask those questions anymore at schools and the parents are busy and among their, their peers they don't know what peers they don't know what to do. So there's a, a deep lack of uh, uh, having incorporating human value, mind training and all that in, in education. I guess we are running a little bit out of time. Um, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself, uh, your book, or uh, any of your recent projects? Well, although you know I'm inspired by Buddhist ideas, but I think uh, there are some basic notions about the way the mind works and what are the deepest uh, mechanisms of, of happiness and suffering. And so I've been trying to express that and compare this with uh, Western philosophy and poets. And, different conception of happiness and trying to find that really what we need is to change our mind. I mean to rid ourselves from those mental toxins of hatred, jealousy and pride. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way and cultivate the corresponding qualities of you know genuine altruism and inner freedom and, and peace and sense of meaning and direction. And that if we could spend a little more time looking within our mind, you know, we are ready to do so much for studying, uh, learning professional skills fitness, uh, physical beauty, mm -hmm. and we pay so little attention to that small brat that is our mind. <laughs> Yet, it is our mind who experiences everything from morning to evening and determines the quality of every instant of life. So we should pay a little more attention to our mind, and this is a wonderful adventure. Dr. Ricard, thanks so much for your time. It's been very inspiring. Okay, thank you. And we were just talking to Dr. Matthew Ricard, on the science of happiness. His book, Happiness, Life's Most Important Skill, is now available online and bookstores around the country. This is Berkeley Grouch you're listening to here on 90.7. In a few moments, we'll find out how a fermion spins, so stay tuned.
All right now, Clarice, it's Hannibal Lecter again. Chianti and fava beans, so symmetric they are. But do they have half integer spin? Like the fermion, not like the boson with full integer spin. And that is the answer. Now run away, little one, run away. Okay, then question of this week is What is quasi or core? You know the answer, or just think you know the answer. Email us grog at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll be feeling much slimmer. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grogs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you want to contact us, Berkeley Grog, email us grogs at hotmail.com for Berkeley Grogs. I'm Yuri Tanaka. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.